I haven't been able to say this to you this morning uh, yet because I just walked in. Uh, I want to say good morning, and it's great to see you. I uh, have the privilege every fifth when a Sunday has five Sundays, I have the privilege of going down to Soledad and preaching in prison there at their chapel service, and that's where I came from, and uh, thankfully I didn't get a major speeding ticket and spend time in prison on my way back, but, uh, but it's good to be here, and I uh, hope that your day's going well. The men there told me this. They said, tell your church thank you so much for allowing you to come and, uh, and be with us, and so I wanted you to know that, and, and uh, they're a great group of, great group of men uh, that I get to interact with, and so anyway, we're here now, and we're at this place where we're going to start a new series, and, and I'm going to ask you to walk, us, walk with me through it, and we're calling it the sensational God, and throughout Scripture, there are different places where God talks about our senses, talks about touching and seeing. He talks about if I could, if there's this encounter where this woman reaches up and says, if I could only touch his cloak, we're called to be an aroma of Christ to those around us. And so we're going to be walking through this, and we come to this place today where we get to look at David. We get to look at King David and what he experienced, and, and there is this temptation to think that we can only believe that God is good when things are going really well in our lives. And for David, as we see in this passage this morning, we're going to find out very quickly things are not good. For David, he was this guy who who at one time was a shepherd. He did great work. He did what, he, what shepherds do. And there was this man by the name of Goliath. He was a giant of a man. And King Saul could not get anyone, could not get any Israelite to go up against this great big giant of a man. And so the cry went out, the call went out, please, if anybody's interested, you know, I don't know of too many people that'd be interested in taking on a guy of this size, but if anybody's willing, would you come? And David showed up. David said, I'm willing to do this. David's, David said, I'm willing to do this. And so Saul brings him in to his, to his tent and he begins to put, not begins, but he puts all this armor on David. And David is weighed down by this armor. And he says, Saul says to David, in essence, this is the way you need to take on this giant of a man. And David couldn't move very well. He wasn't very free to, to move as he was used to moving. And he said something along these lines to the king. He said, this isn't going to work for me. I can't, I can't battle this way. I can't fight this way. He says, all I need is this and this. And then he said this, I don't go into this battle based on the strength of humanity. I go into this battle based on the strength of the Lord. So he took off the armor. He went into this encounter with, with Goliath. Goliath mocks him. And then David puts a stone in his sling and does the slingshot thing. <laughs> that was a poem, more of a rhyme. But anyway, he throws the, sling, he throws the stone and it gives Goliath the greatest splitting headache humanity has ever seen. It's been talked about for centuries. David conquering Goliath. At that point, David then gets into the inner circle of King Saul. He gets into this place where he's eating from King Saul's table. He's on King Saul's team. Saul talks to him. Saul interacts with him. Saul does all these things. David plays the harp and lyre for him to, to soothe Saul. Everything's really good. And then something changes. 
Something changes. Saul turns on David. We find out in Scripture that not once but twice, Saul attempted to throw a spear and pin David to the wall, in essence making David a painting on the wall. Things have gone south for David. David now doesn't know what to do, so David knows that his king is angry with him. David then does what he only could think to do at that particular time. He ran. He ran. He ran into enemy territory. And I invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 21. And we're going to look at this passage because it sets the background for the main passage that we're going to look at. But if we don't see what's going on in David's life, we will not appreciate all that David is writing about. And so David takes off. He goes into Philistine territory. Now in Israel, David is looked at as a hero. David is looking at the one who took down Goliath. David is, is praised over and over and over again. But in the Philistine territory... David is public enemy number one. There is not a man more despised, more wanted than David. They want him dead. Somehow, someway, for a number of months, for over a year, David lives in Philistine territory. And we read in verse 10, something changes at this time as well. Verse 10. That day David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Isn't this David, the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Akish said to his servants, look at the man. He's insane. Why bring him to me? And I love this next verse. Am I so short of madmen that you have brought this fellow here to me? So apparently in, Philistine, in, in this area, there's a whole lot of insane people. He said, don't we have enough of these people already? He says, why have you brought him here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? Verse 1 of chapter 22. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Back in David's day, as well as centuries later in Jesus' day, people who were insane weren't killed. There was this belief that if we kill them, that that spirit that's causing them to do all of these insane things is going to fall on us. And so what they would do is they would shove these people out of their city limits. They would, they would send them into lonely places. It's why we read in the Gospels, there's this demoniac that, that is off in the graveyard. He's off in the cemetery. Well, the reason why he's there is because he's insane. People don't want that spirit around them. Yet Jesus encounters this man and, and rescues this man and turns this man's life around. David is on the run. David then does something that... It's pretty remarkable. He's on the run from Saul. He's on the run from the Philistines. He finds himself in a cave. The crisis is big. And perhaps you're here this morning. There's a crisis going on in your life. Perhaps you're here this morning 
where you feel like you're in a cave. David, this man who just a little while prior was eating from the king's table, David, who had been protected over and over again and seen God do great things, is now on the run, and he finds himself in a cold, dark, damp cave. The crisis has reached a boiling point for him. He's reached a breaking point. And in all of our lives, when crises come down on us, it's very easy for us to break. It's very easy for us to give up. It's very easy for us to point at God and blame him for this or that or something else. But David does something in that cave that we get to read about now. I invite you to turn a few pages to the right and go to Psalm 34. And listen to this. These are the words that David wrote while he was in that cave. And we learn an awful lot about David here. And more importantly, we learn about our God. Verse 1. I will extol Yahweh at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in Yahweh. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify Yahweh with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought Yahweh, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called, and Yahweh heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles, and he delivers. Or The angel of the Yahweh encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that Yahweh is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear Yahweh, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek Yahweh, they lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of Yahweh. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil, your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of Yahweh are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. But the face of Yahweh is against those who do evil to blot out their name from the earth. The righteous cry out, and Yahweh hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. Yahweh is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many troubles, but Yahweh delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. Yahweh will rescue his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. Father, we pray now, as we come to this time of looking at your word, we would pray that your Holy Spirit would move among us freely. We pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes so that we can see how good you are, that you would open our minds that we can understand more fully how good you are, that you would open our ears so that we can hear a message of your goodness, no matter what's going on in our lives. And that you would open our hearts that we would be transformed by your goodness so that we can go and proclaim your good news to others. Lord, may no one hear anything that I say, but only what it is that you want them to hear, that you need them to hear. And Lord Jesus, may no one receive any glory except you and you alone, because you are worthy 
to receive all glory. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, I pray. Amen. I want us to focus on verse 8. Verse 8 is where we're going to start. And, and it's my belief that verse 8 is the hinge verse upon this whole psalm. That if you remove verse 8, yeah, the psalm is still a beautiful psalm. Yeah, it still makes sense. But verse 8 seems to give us reason for why David can say what he says all around verse 8. And verse 8 says this, Taste and see that Yahweh is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. We are to have a mouth-watering belief in God's goodness. We are to have this belief that he is always good all the time, all the time he is good. Yet, here's what's interesting to me. Humanity has struggled with one attribute of God almost since the very beginning, and that attribute is this, God's goodness. For some strange reason, even though God had created everything for humanity, and at the end of every day, as we're told in in Genesis chapter 1, at the end of every day, God saw what he created, and it was good. Everything was good. Everything was taken care of. But for some reason, humanity has this doubt that God is good. We have this doubt that God is always good. Look at your own life. I invite you to look at your life right now. When you have doubted God's goodness, what's happened next? If you're like me, what happens next is a whole lot of heartache, a whole lot more brokenness, a whole lot more confusion, and a whole lot more goes wrong. When we doubt God's goodness, it hurts us. It hurts us. And all of us have been there. And David is in this crisis. David is in this crisis. He's in a cave for crying out loud. He doesn't have Wi-Fi. He doesn't have HDTV. He's in a cave. This person who used to be eating at the king's table is now in a cave. And in the midst of that cave, he says, taste and see that Yahweh is good. Taste. I could lay before you one of the most beautiful buffets of all time. Matter of fact, as I was walking in, The aroma of the gym almost distracted me so much that I said, I'm done preaching. I'm not preaching today. I'm eating. It smells delicious. But I could lay before you this great buffet, all types of different meats. I would even include vegetables on this buffet. They'd be steamed and fried or what? I guess you can't really steam and fry. But anyway, my point is there'd be vegetables. Sorry, Quinn. I I need them fried. So my point is... You could see that buffet. I could then give you all types of definitions about how this meat is to be cooked. I could talk about how this vegetable came into being. I could then move into into the desserts and and how great they look and, and how it was all put together. I could describe this buffet to you. Your mouths would be watering. You would be salivating. You would be saying, oh, this is incredible. I can tell you all you need to know about how great this buffet is. 
But until you taste it, it doesn't mean a whole lot. Until you taste it, you don't know how good it is. David says, taste and see that Yahweh is good. There is a big difference between knowing about God and knowing God. And that's exactly what David is driving at here. He's in a cave and he describes who God is, but yet you know the reason why this has such brilliance and such, such resonance with us is that he's talking about how much he really knows God. He knows God, and there's this difference between knowing about him and knowing God. People can quote all types of scriptures. People can explain all types of theological truths. People can recite all types of all the different commandments. They can tell you about the implications of the flood. They can describe Jesus Christ's death on the cross and, and all the trauma that he experienced. They can go on and on and on about all these different things. There are plenty of people who have written about God, but the question is, do they know God? Do they know this God? Do they know this God that is willing to say, I want to interact with you? I want to be a part of your life. You see, one of the issues that we have is that we know a whole lot about God, but we don't know God as well as we think we do. There's a quote that's going to come up on the screen. It's, by a guy, it's from a guy by the name of Craig Gay. He says this. He says, the problem isn't atheism. In fact, a red-blooded atheist is hard to find. The problem is practical atheism. It's not that people do not believe in God. It's that they live as if God is largely irrelevant. As I read this the other day, it hit me pretty hard. How often I go into my life and how often I sit there and I try to figure it out and leave God off on the side. Leave the fact that Jesus Christ understands precisely what I'm experiencing in life. I just say, yeah, but this is different. Taste and see that Yahweh is good. David's in a cave and he's writing these words saying, taste and see. Here's another quote. If you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it's not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It's because you've nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things and there is no room for the great. God did not create you for this. There is an appetite for God and it can be awakened. I submit to you, it's time for us to stop nibbling and it's time for us to taste and see that God is good. Begin to experience, or for some of you, you're already experiencing this thing. You're already experiencing the greatness of God. But so often, so often, we go into crisis, we're in crisis, or perhaps there's not even crisis, and God is a side part of our lives. He's not an integral part. And what David is talking about here is tasting and seeing, interacting with this amazing God. Interacting with this amazing God that, that, that is right there. We need to stop nibbling. And we need to start 
experiencing and we need to start walking and tasting how good he truly is so i call it the hinge verse and the reason why i call it the hinge verse is because what comes before it and what comes after it has a lot to do with what we just said look at verses one to four one to three it says this, I will extol Yahweh at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I'll glory in Yahweh. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify Yahweh with me. Let us exalt his name together. We have this mouth-watering belief that God is good. It then leads to mouth-watering praise. And one of the things that happens is when we gather on a Sunday morning corporately, we're singing praise to this great God. We're singing praise to this great God. We... we we get to do that together. One of the greatest things that I get to experience every Sunday morning, and I mean this, is getting to hang out with you people. It's awesome. I absolutely, thoroughly enjoy it. And part of the reason why I enjoy it so much is that we get to sing praises to this great God. I may very well be going through some stuff in my life. You may very well be going, going through stuff in your life. But these songs that we sing, the interactions that we have, look at what he says here. I will extol Yahweh at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. And then look at verse 3. Glorify Yahweh with me. Let us exalt his name together. We get to taste and see that God is good. We get to taste and see that God is good together. I may be going through something. You may be going through something. But when we come together corporately, something happens as we sing out these great songs that Jesus Christ is our cornerstone, that he is our defense, that he will not let us down. Some of you, are experiencing family situations that are breaking your heart. Some of you are experiencing financial stress that you've never experienced before. Some of you are experiencing health situations that are not good. But yet you're here, and in the midst of it, you're crying out to God saying, yes, you are still good. I'm tasting your goodness in the midst of what I'm experiencing in life. And perhaps you came here this morning and you're going, I don't know if you're good or not. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, you came here this morning and it's my hope, it's my prayer that through being with others, you're reminded that God is good. You're reminded that he's there. And I love what David does here. He has this unconditional understanding of God's worth. Remember, David is writing this psalm from a cave. He's writing this psalm from a cave, and in the midst of it, he says this, His praise will always be on my lips, even in the midst of the garbage that's going on. His life is being threatened, and yet he says, I'm still going to praise God. Are you a conditional praiser? Where the only time that praise the Lord comes out of your mouth is when it's just good? Are you moved by the Holy Spirit in such a way to praise God even when things are not going that well? And if you've lived long enough, you know this, that life isn't always sunshine and rainbows. 
You know that there are clouds. You know that there are difficulties. And David's in this difficult spot right now, and he says his praise, God's praise, will always be on my lips. How can he do that? It's because David tasted and saw that God is good. And then we move to verse 4, and he says this, I sought Yahweh, and he answered me. I laugh at that every time I read it. Going, really? You're in a cave. You're in a cave right now, David. That's not exactly the Hilton. You're in a cave. I sought Yahweh, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. It may very well be a cave, but you know what? God's brought me here. God's delivered, God's delivered me. He's walked me through it. He delivered me from all my fears. We want to believe that we can conquer fears. We want to believe that we can do this all on our own. My question to people when they say all this is this. Why then, if you can conquer all your fears on your own, why is it that God repeatedly says throughout Scripture, do not be afraid? Why is do not fear the number one commandment in the entire Bible? It's because fear is real. Fear can paralyze us. Fear can overwhelm us. Fear can make us do stupid things. But yet in the midst of it, David can say this, he delivered me from all my fears. He's going to walk me through all my fears. How do I know this? Because I've tasted and I've seen that God is good. And because I've tasted and seen that God is good, I can look to him, and as I look to him, my face is radiant. Notice what he says. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. Never covered with shame. All of us have done something that if everyone found out about it, we would cower and run and be covered in shame. All of us. Every single person in this room, every single person you've met or will meet has done something that's shameful. When we taste and see that God is good, he removes that shame. When we taste and see that God cares about us and he reaches into that, shame's removed. Because we can have this mouth-watering interaction with God. He interacts in all aspects of our life. He isn't one who stays far off. He he gets involved and he removes that shame and he says, trust in me. There's this bogus idea that says you can't really know God until you get your life cleaned up. Well, if that's the case, we're never going to get to know God. We're told in Romans that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to get our act together and said, okay, now you're ready. No, he saw what's going on. He saw the shameful things that we were doing, and he came and he rescued us. 
And I love what he says here. He says this, look at verse six. He says, this poor man called and Yahweh heard him. And I think he's talking about himself there. So he's talking to the third person. He says this, he saved him out of all his troubles. As I was thinking about this this week, this is what struck me. He saved him from, he got him out of all these troubles. The only way to get out of something is for God to reach into something and pull you out. Our God is not afraid to get his hands dirty. Our God reaches into your situation and walks you through to pull you out. We know that to be true when we taste and see that God is good. There's this interaction that needs to happen, and it's all throughout this psalm. David understands this interaction because he's tasting and seeing that God is good. Yes, he's in a cave, but yet it does not stop the fact that God is still interacting with him. I ask you right now, when was the last time you interacted with this God? When was the last time that you took the time and acknowledged who he was and said, you're here with me? When was that last time? Are you in a cave right now? And God's saying, I want to interact with you. And then if, you, if we had the time, we could go all the way through verses 9 all the way to 22 because here's what, what happens in this. As we taste and see that God is good, we then get to have a mouth-watering response in our lives and our lives show that. Listen to what he says here. He says this, Fear Yahweh, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. How do we know? Because we've tasted and seen that God is good. Verse 10, the lions may grow weak and hungry. I love that. The king of the jungle, the mighty king of the jungle, the lions, will grow weak and hungry. But notice what he says, but those who seek Yahweh lack no good thing. How do we know that? By tasting and seeing that God is good. As one tastes and sees, one's life is changed. Look at verse 13. Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. When we encounter this God, when we interact with this God, when we taste and see that God is good, it it elicits a response in us where our life is radically different. We're no longer going the ways of the world where we can lie and think that we can get away with it, where we hold grudges, where we, do, where we only look out for ourselves. When we taste and see that God is good, we realize that he's with us, that we can be people of integrity, that we can tell the truth no matter what the consequences, and we know that he's not going to let us down because he delivers us from all our troubles. The righteous cry out, verse 17, the righteous cry out, and Yahweh hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. Yahweh is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Verse 22, Yahweh will rescue his servants. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, on the night that Jesus was denied, on the night that Jesus was crucified, an event happened before that. 
where Jesus Christ took bread and he broke it. And he said, this represents my body broken for you. Every time you eat it, remember me. He then took wine and poured it into a cup and he says, this represents my blood which will be poured out for you. Every time you drink it, remember me. Jesus Christ invites the apostles into the darkest moment in human history and he says, taste and know that God is good. Jesus saw what was going on and Jesus responded to what was going on and Jesus' response is always good and his response is always for our good because it involves a rescue. When we taste and we see that God is good, we know this, that we'll be rescued because Jesus Christ pulled it off. We're invited again and again to taste and see that God is good. We're invited to interact with Him all the time. A number of years ago, a university invited a, a theologian who denied the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. They found his insights profound. They found his research pretty thorough. And so they invited him to speak one day. And, and not just students were there, but, but there were people from, from that city were there. And this professor, he quoted scholar after scholar and, he, and, and book after book. And he said that all this religious tradition of the, of the church was groundless, emotional mumbo-jumbo because it's based on a relationship with a risen Jesus who never really truly rose from the dead, in his opinion. He shared this for two hours. At the end of those two hours, he then said, any questions? And there was a man sitting in the back, an older gentleman. He stood up and he says, I have one question for you. And he reached into a brown bag and pulled out an apple and began to eat the apple. He says, sir, I'm not as educated as you are. I can't quote the Greek and I can't quote the Hebrew. Some of these people that you mentioned who are your, who are your friends and these, these other theologians, I'm not, I'm not on that level. I don't know who these theologians are. I've never interacted with them. I've read some of their books, but I'm not on a friendly basis with them. And he kept eating his apple. And at the end of it, he says, Sir, I have one question for you. took that last bite, opened the bag, dropped his apple into the bag. And the professor looked at him and said, what is your question, sir? And the old man looked at him and said, all I want to know is this. This apple I just ate, was it bitter or sweet? And the professor looked around at the audience and looked around the auditorium and he was, he was flummoxed. 
And he looks back at the gentleman in the back and he says, I cannot possibly answer that question for I haven't tasted your apple. And the, white, and the, the older gentleman lifted up his brown bag with the eaten apple in it and he said this, then neither have you tasted my Jesus. And the crowd erupted in applause. You might not have all the answers. You might not know Greek or Hebrew. You might not be able to quote everything in the Bible. But God says, I want to interact with you. I want you to taste. I want you to see. I want you to know that I am good. Taste and see that God is good. He invites you this morning to interact with him. He invites you this morning to say, I want to know you. I want to trust you. And I want to taste and see that you're good. Father, we pray now. As we come into this time of reflecting and responding, we would ask that your Holy Spirit would move in such a way that you would help us understand more fully your goodness. Lord, we confess that there are too many times in our lives when we've talked about you rather than talked to you and lived for you and interacted with you. Have mercy on us. Have mercy on us for those times when we say that we don't want to interact with you. And Lord, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that as we interact with you, as you break through our cold-heartedness, our indifference, our, our desire to do things our own way, as you break into that and you remind us of you being good and we get to taste and experience your goodness to us, I pray as you invade that, that we would respond with lives that are nothing but praise and worship to you no matter what we're doing. And Father, for those in this room that do not, have not placed their trust in Jesus Christ, may they say yes to you today. And that in the process, their faces are radiant, that, they're, that their shame is removed, and that they are free to taste and see that you are good. Lord, hear us as we cry out to you. Hear us as we sing out to you. Hear us as we proclaim your goodness, your mercy, your never-ending grace. Thank you for the rescue that comes through Jesus Christ, and I thank you that he tasted death so that we wouldn't have to. That eternal life that he offers is abundant, and may we not forget that. And may we turn to you, tasting and seeking that you are good. 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I invite you to stand now as the uh, worship team gets ready, and I'm going to remind you of a couple things. I, I want to encourage you as you go into this week, I want to encourage you to spend time in Psalm 34, to perhaps even spend so much time in Psalm 34 that, that you understand anew the depth and incredible awesomeness of this great God. So we're going to sing a couple more songs, and I invite you to sing out.